Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Good day, you legends. It's Wednesday, and folks, today I wanted to do something different. Straight from October 1919, the steep and highly costly expense of 10 cents at the time, sheesh, is a duo piece of Alexander Berkman, an anarchist of both political and social activism, and also Emma Goldman, similarly, also an anarchist and political social activist. This piece, all the way back in 1919, still carries with it echoes of what we see in modern society, regarding prisons, treatment of prisoners, and raises the question of what is a prisoner from an overall societal lens. The views in this piece are really unique, and I don't necessarily prescribe to a lot of it, but I find it fascinating. I can see how experiences directly being in the United States prison system, meeting the people, the differences in common criminals opposed to political criminals, and the overall treatment of prisoners having a major influence on both these authors, solidifying their views towards the political state. Alexander, in my opinion, definitely represents a significant hatred towards the police, police guards, and how the laws imprison people in general, while Emma definitely acknowledges the horrific conditions in prisoners, but provides really valuable insights and experiences to support her statements. Either way, both perspectives are really interesting. Part of this little research piece includes letters written by Alexander to the warden at the time, and you can get to understand the no-bullshit attitude brought to the table by both parties, and how each handled the main problem, prisoner abuse, from their respective sides. I hope you find this fascinating, mates, as much as I have. Also, I've included for my Patreon supporters a section on old stamps and badges that you would rarely see, and they were stamps produced on the suspenders, jackets, and garments worn within the United States that prisoners would produce. Those stamps, though, would be seriously rare now, I think. But what freaks me out the most out of all of this is that most of those making them would have had some serious health conditions that would or could have been passed on to those wearing them. Eesh, but I'll not get ahead of myself. So join me today, mates, for a very special episode indeed. I dug around for this particular one. Text from the past that echoed a unique idea of prisons and perspective on prisons into the future. Enjoy. There was a time, and that not so very long ago, when popular ignorance and superstition looked upon an insane person as one possessed of the devil or of some other evil spirit. They sought to drive the evil one out by beating and torturing the insane, and often even by drowning, hanging, and burning. We have fortunately passed that stage of stupid brutality. Today, even the most ignorant man knows that insanity is a disease. But in regard to crime and criminals, we are still in the stage of Dark Age Superstition. We look upon the criminal today as we did upon the insane 50 or 75 years ago. Most men still believe that by beating and punishing the criminal, by hanging and electrocution, we can drive the evil spirit out of him. This process is called reforming the criminal. Yet common sense and all human experience prove that the criminal is no more responsible for crime than the crazy man for his insanity. These pseudoscientific theories of the Lombrosis in regard to crime and criminals have been thoroughly exploded 
and proven utterly fallacious. Even if the Lombroso myth that the criminal is born were true, what good would it do to punish him? There might be some social justification for his isolation, but how could the criminal, if born such, be held accountable for his criminality? But as a matter of fact, as modern criminology has proven beyond all dispute, the criminal is made, not born. He is the product of his environment, a child of poverty and desperation, of misery, greed, and ambition. He is at the same time the symbol and the proof of a diseased social condition, the miscarriage of perverted economic arrangements. Fully, 97% of all crime is due directly to our economic institutions. The other 3% are traceable to the artificiality and neurosis of modern life, to the antisocial tendencies cultivated amongst the weeds in the neglected and mistreated garden of human life. I have been in close contact with so-called criminals for a great many years. Yet nowhere have I found the alleged criminal type, nor have I ever discovered the real criminal. He does not exist. Crime is simply misdirected energy, effort applied wrongly. The average criminal is just the average man, generally speaking. If in any sense he may be considered a variation, it is only because of his frequently superior initiative, daring and intelligence. His often antisocial activity is conditioned by his unconventional vocation, not by any inherent criminal or antisocial tendencies. I am not speaking of congenital criminal degenerates whose number is infinitesimal, and who belong in the care of the alienists. The vast majority of the so-called criminal class are thoroughly normal human beings. If the term may be applied to the type of man produced by modern civilization, I have had scores and hundreds of professional criminals, young and old, tell me again and again, the only hope and ambition of my life is just to get a little pile so that I can feel secure from want. Then I take my family somewhere in the country and live a quiet and honest life. My present space is limited. I can merely shadow forth here a skeleton outline of this big and very vital subject. In a forthcoming book, I shall analyze more thoroughly the sources and the psychology of crime and write of the unique and interesting prison types and characters I've met. For the present, it is sufficient to emphasize that our whole social attitude towards the criminal is fundamentally wrong. It is the attitude of barbaric stupidity that seeks to hide its own shame and its mistakes behind prison bars. It has neither understanding of human motives nor sympathy with human weaknesses. This social attitude towards the criminal, representing the lowest human intelligence, is reflected in the management and discipline of the prisons. It is apparent that modern criminology has had a very negligible effect upon the popular mind within the last 25 years. For I have found the prisons of the day in no essential way different from those of a quarter of a century back. Brutality is rampant, discipline is synonymous with the absolute suppression of individuality and the crushing of the prisoner's spirit and will. The atmosphere of our penal institutions of today is that of violence and force with very rare exceptions, the spirit of humanity, of understanding, and justice is a stranger in prison. The State Prison at Jefferson City, M.O. by Emma Goldman. 
26 years ago, in 1893, I paid the first toll for my opinions in the state of New York with a year's free residence in the Blackwell Island Penitentiary. I found the cells small, dark, and filthy, the sanitary conditions appalling, and the general attitude towards the convict on the part of the prison officials hard and cruel. Terrible as these conditions were, they had some justification. In 1893, there was barely a spark anywhere to discredit the antiquated and inhuman theory of predestination, the Calvinistic idea that man is born a sinner and that he must expiate his sins through suffering and pain. This attitude toward the criminal and the methods of punishment rest on this biblical conception to this very day. Much more did that idea prevail 26 years ago. Since then, criminology has undergone a revolution. Libraries are filled with works on the origin and causes of crime, on the futility of punishment as the corrective of crime. More and more frequently, modern writers have pointed out that crimes are related to social conditions, and that brutal treatment of prisoners makes them become more hardened and antisocial. With a vast literature on scientific criminology and the widespread attempt to reform prisons to humanize the treatment of the unfortunate social offender, one might have expected some changes in the penal institutions of this country. Yet in the year 1918, in the states of Missouri and Georgia, and for aught we know in every state in the land, prisons continue to be built of bricks of shame. And there's a poem. The vilest deeds, like poison weeds, bloom well in prison air. It is only what is good in man that wastes and withers there. Pale anguish keeps the heavy gate, and the warder is despair. To be sure, the cells in the Missouri State Penitentiary, at least in the female wing, are larger and some of them lighter than the vermin-infested cells of Blackwell's Island 26 years ago. But even there, the cells are never light enough except on very sunny days, while more than half the cells are in utter darkness and without ventilation. In fact, air is the most tabooed article in the Missouri prison. Except in extremely warm weather, the windows are rarely opened. Healthy women are forced to breathe the putrid air of consumptives and syphilitics. During the influenza epidemic, when 35 prisoners lay stricken, we had to plead and fight for the opening of a window. To this day, I cannot understand how any of us survived, except that the Lord takes care of us poor sinners. Yes, the cells are larger, the sanitation modern, but in every other aspect, in the attitude of the officials towards the prisoner, the cold indifference to his needs. The methods of breaking his will and, above all, the mode of employment have not improved, but are even worse than my experience on Blackwell's Island in 1893. I cannot dwell here on the blood-freezing reception accorded each hopeless victim when the prison doors close upon her. That alone is enough to crush the bravest spirit and turn one's very soul to gall and hate I shall treat of this in my forthcoming book, dealing with my 20 months experience in the Missouri State Prison. It is the task system that prevails in this prison, 
as truly slavery as ever existed in the country before the Civil War, which chiefly needs to be exposed, the contract system of prison labour had been abolished officially. The state is now the employer. Yet no slave owner so drove, coerced and exploited his slaves as Missouri bleeds and exploits its helpless victims in the penitentiary at Jefferson City. Two months are allowed to learn the trade, which consists of sewing jackets, overalls, auto coats, and suspenders. Tasks varying from 45 to 121 jackets a day, or from 9 to 8 dozen suspenders a day. Now, while the actual machine work of these different tasks is the same, the number of jackets in the 88 or 121 task is double to that of the 45, 55, and 66 tasks. Hence, double physical exertion is required. Yet, the different tasks might be made in the same number of hours without regard to age, physical endurance, periods of menstruation, when machine work is sheer torture to women. Even illness, unless it is of a very serious nature, is not considered sufficient cause to be relieved from the terrible task. So, unless one had previous experience in the needle trade or a special aptitude for it, one's life is made a veritable hell. Beginning a few days after commitment and lasting till the final day of release, no understanding for human variations, no consideration for mental or physical limitations, except for a few favourites of the prison officials, those who are usually the most worthless. The shop foreman in charge is a boy of 21, who took up the art of slave driving at the age of 16. He bullies and terrorises the women, holding the threat of the blind cell and the bread and water diet over them. The vilest language is used to the women, some of them old enough to be the boy's mother. Of course, he is paid to show results. The only way he can get results is through slave driving methods, as well as by actually stealing part of the women's output, especially from the more ignorant or who are unable to do their own counting. On more than one occasion, I've seen this miserable foreman deliberately steal jackets and suspenders from colored girls who are serving 25-year sentences and from illiterate white girls. If they dare insist that they delivered their quota of work, they are punished for impudence, in addition to being punished for short work. In view of the fact that four punishment marks a month reduce the prisoner one grade, and that a higher grade means speedier release from the prison hell, the enormity of this petty official's criminal thievery can be appreciated. Yet this man is considered fit to be in charge of 60 to 70 criminals. It does not take much wisdom to find the greater criminal. It may be argued that this ignorant and vulgar young man is only a tool, and therefore not to blame. Partly, this is true. The state is the real offender. The officials of the prison board, as well as the petty subordinates who live by the sweat and blood of these social outcasts. The very first year the state of Missouri became the exploiter of the convict's labor, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported that the salaries of the prison officials had been increased 20000 per annum. No wonder the acting warden, Captain Gilvin, a bully and a brute who used to administer flogging, when it was still officially in vogue in Missouri, once said to us in the shop, 
I must have the task. You must make it. No such thing as can't. If you do, if you do not give me the task, I will punish you, and I will punish you cheerfully. Having the support and approval of such a man, and the sanction of the head matron, a woman entirely bereft of feeling, it is natural for the foreman to squeeze and press and bully the task out of the women. But can anyone suppose that the foreman could lend himself to such brutal slave driving if he were not depraved himself? It is utterly impossible to keep up the required speed day after day. The working hours are nine a day, but in order to complete the task, the women are driven to the old-time sweatshop method of taking work evenings to their cells. In view of the fact that the cells are vermin-infested, and the jackets and suspenders the prisoners make are sold broadcast and have already been handled by consumptive and venerally infected male prisoners who prepare the work, the results can readily be imagined. Personally, I was well supplied by many friends with nourishing food. I am an adept at the needle trade, having worked at it for many years. When I first came to know the many economic opportunities in our so-called democracy, yet I never could keep up the mind and soul-destroying speed in the prison shop. Therefore, I know what it means to the underfed women prisoners. Not one but emerges with impaired health. If the contract system were really abolished, why would the state of Missouri drive its prison inmates? Inmates, for a very simple reason: the state of Missouri, like the private contractor, does business with private concerns in every state of the union. Proof of this is given by the labels sewn on every garment that leaves the prison. I was able to smuggle out a few, which are reproduced here. Civilization claims to have advanced. And in no country do we hear so much about prison reform as in our own. Yet what can we say for the state of Missouri when at the head of their female department is a woman in charge of ninety women prisoners who has control over their life and death? Listeners, I'm going to include the different clothing stamps in my Patreon notes, so be sure to check that out. They are really, really interesting. There are some with trains on them. There were some that. Look like private brands like Samson Brand, Goodwear Guaranteed, or Money Back, and even one from Lincoln Jobbing House. True to his country, true to our trade is what it says. Be sure to check that one out in my Patreon post. Back to the accounts. This woman, Lila Smith, has been employed in penal institutions since her fifteenth year and has therefore little education or training. She is a believer in rigid discipline. And punishment. She is really a neurotic, who has no control over her temper. She uses physical violence on the slightest pretext, especially when a particular prisoner is not in her good graces. Not once in twenty months did I hear her address one single encouraging or kind word to a prisoner. Flogging in the state of Missouri has been officially abolished, but Lila Smith's vigorous slapping. Goes on. There are three methods of punishment. First, the women are deprived of their recreation. Second, they are locked up in their cells for forty-eight hours, from Saturday to Monday, on a diet of bread and water, and then expected to begin their task Monday in their weakened condition. Third, 
they are sent to a blind cell. A cell 52 inches by 104 inches with an aperture of 7 inches by 1 and a half inches, supplied with one blanket, two pieces of bread, and two cups of water a day. In this tomb, they are kept from 3 to 22 days. Added to this maddening torture are the bull rings, which, while never used for white women during my stay, were used on coloured girls. The worst tragedy which occurred during my stay in the prison was the deliberate murder of Minnie Eddie. When I entered in February, Minnie had already been there a number of months. She struggled valiantly with the task, which she seemed unable to master. To avoid punishment, she used every cent her sister sent her to hire the task. In November 1918, she began to complain of pain in her head and throat. She went to the doctor, but he ordered her back to the shop. She went back, but seemed unable to pull herself together to do any work. The matron decided she was shamming, so in other words, lying, and put her in punishment. At first, she was kept in her own cell on bread and water, when the matron, realizing that we were feeding Minnie, transferred her to the so-called hospital, where a mattress was refused her, and only a bare cot and blanket were supplied. In that place, the unfortunate woman was kept another week. I went to the matron shortly after Minnie was put into the hospital, begging for her release. It was refused. The matron still insisting that the woman was shamming. Then, Thanksgiving Day, Minnie was brought down and allowed to eat her Thanksgiving dinner of putrid pork on an empty stomach. Two days later, I took Minnie a couple of soft-boiled eggs, and seeing on her table a box sent by her relatives some weeks before, and which had just been given to her, I warned her against using the decayed food in her present condition. But she was ravenous. That evening, some of the prison trustees came to me and told me that Minnie was in a heap on the floor, unconscious. I demanded that they call Miss Smith the matron. The matron screamed at and slapped the unconscious woman. She was allowed to remain in her cell until Monday, when I could endure the situation no longer and insisted on seeing Mr. Painter, president of the prison board, who came over at once. He had been told that Minnie was refusing food. He gave orders to have her moved back to her own cell and put one of the girls in charge as her nurse. From the latter, I learned that an attempt was made to feed Minnie forcibly, but it was too late. She never regained consciousness, dying Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. Her terrible death benefited the other women, insomuch as no one was afterwards placed in the death trap for more than five days. So do the dead sometimes aid the living. There are two criterions on the part of the officials in dealing with the prisoners. If they are sick, they are told that they are shamming. If they cannot make the task, they are told they are lazy. Frequently, sick prisoners are ordered back to the shop by the physician when they are barely able to drag themselves along. This is the more remarkable because he is not an unkindly man and was especially decent to me. The reasons for his indifference to the other women there, I discovered during my last days at the prison. He is at dagger's point with the board, therefore he is unable to do what he would like. The Missouri State Penitentiary has the merit system, 
which is only another method of pressing out more labor from its victims. Those who can stand the nerve-tearing speed and get into A-class, the highest class, have their time reduced almost in half. Therefore, many of the women work beyond their limit of physical capacity to get out of the hellhole, even at the expense of their health. However, only state prisoners benefit by this merit system. Not so the federal prisoners. They are forced to make the task every day, though their time is in no way affected. Imagine the outrage in the case of a prisoner serving a 25-year sentence. Day after day, year in and year out, she is browbeaten and harassed to make the task. If she fails, she is repeatedly thrown into the blind cell. If she succeeds, she gains nothing. The federal government pays the state for the upkeep of each federal prisoner. In addition, the state makes a huge profit from the labor of these federals. In return, it gives them not a single privilege. The reduction of six days time a month is provided for by the federal government. It is a most unspeakable injustice toward helpless human beings. In disclosing conditions prevalent in the female department of the Missouri State Penitentiary, I am in no way prompted by personal grievances. Thanks to the liberality of thanks to the liberality of Mr. William K. Painter, President of the Prison Board, and possibly also because of the fear of publicity on the part of the management. I have no personal complaints to make. In justice to Mr. Painter, I must say that he is a rather unusual man for his position. Whenever his attention was called to some grievance, he was always ready to remedy it. But prison abuses are conditioned in the very character of prison life and in corrupted politics, so that nothing short of the complete abolition of prisons will ever eradicate the terrible wrongs committed in penal institutions. Meanwhile, it is necessary to continue to point out that criminals are victims of our mad social arrangement, and to emphasize the utter failure of punishment as a corrective, as well as to expose the average brutal and ignorant type of prison official. The recognition of this may help to change our better-than-thou attitude towards the criminal. As for my own experiences, in all my 20 months of the closest contact with my fellow prisoners, I did not find one I could call depraved, cruel, or hard. On the contrary, I know a lifer there who came to the penitentiary hardly more than a child. She has already served 15 years. She is a most tender and devoted creature. She has one hold on life, a dog, whom she loves and tends with a mother's devotion. Who is the true criminal, this poor heartbroken little woman, or the officials who have the power to let her spend her remaining years in freedom, and yet keep her? Another woman who has a 15-year sentence, is completely broken in health and in constant physical misery. She is passionately devoted to her only child, a little boy. Is she the criminal or those who keep her there? Her offense was the result of a moment's aberration. Theirs is a cold-blooded, methodical and daily crime. Who is the greater criminal? Another woman, the mother of eight children, worked and starved half to death on a farm she is thrown into prison for stealing a pig. Who is the greater criminal? This poor woman, or the state which sent her there? I found no criminals among my fellow prisoners, only unfortunates, broken, helpless, hapless, and hopeless human beings. 
how rich in comparison are we political prisoners? Kate Richards O'Hare, who has the gift of going into the life of every prisoner, soothing and comforting and sustaining her, and is herself sustained by the ideal and the love of thousands. Rare little Ella and Antolini, with her marvellous stoicism, her splendid fortitude, and her great capacity for human sympathy. We politicals are rich indeed, rich in the love of our dear comrades, rich in our faith of a future, strong in our position. But the others, it is for them we plead against the wrongs, the inhumanities committed against those in the prison we left behind. Indeed, in every prison in the land. And now I'm going to share some letters sent back and forth by Alexander Berkman to the press and directly to Fred G. Zerps, the warden of the U.S. Federal Penitentiary in Atlanta, GA. And they get a bit fiery. You'll see what I mean. This one is a statement by Alexander Berkman. This country is at the present time going through the same throes of social and industrial rebirth that are convulsing England, France, and other European countries. The steelworkers' strike is merely one of the symptoms of the social evolutionary process that may in the near future culminate in revolution. The sources of labour discontent in this country are identical with those in every other land of our so-called civilization. The working masses are not satisfied anymore with empty political democracy. They demand a share in the products of their industry and the opportunity to live, to enjoy life. Industrial slavery, perhaps more acute in the United States, industrial slavery, perhaps more acute in the United States than anywhere else, is on its deathbed. The next step in the social life of the world is the taking over of all industry by the workers, both manual and mental, to be managed and operated by themselves, for the benefit of the producers instead of for the profit of our industrial and financial kaisers. The present struggle of the steelworkers vividly calls back to my memory the great steel strike of Homestead in 1892, when the Pinkertons hired by Carnegie and Frick shot the strikers down wholesale for demanding living conditions. In connection with the Homestead strike, I served 14 years in the Western Penitentiary of Pennsylvania. We have made some progress since then. The workers especially have learned a good deal since the days of the Homestead strike. They have learned the most important lesson of all, and that is that labor has an invincible weapon in solidarity. That is also the lesson that is being impressed on American labor today by the workers of England. Soon, the American Federation of Labor will realize that it is folly to call a strike of steelworkers without at the same time securing the solidaric support of all the other key industries. The railwaymen and the miners, for instance. As long as the workers in those industries strike separately at different times, they run the risk of defeat. But a simultaneous strike of all the three key industries would quickly bring our Garys, Morgans, and Fricks to their senses. But whatever the immediate outcome of the steel strike, it is but a question of a short time before American labor will make solidaric calls throughout all industries and assert the right of their toilers to the ownership of the full product of their toil. The day of capitalistic autocracy is gone. The future belongs to the proletariat of hand and brain. The present labor situation in the United States is full of promise for the future. The war and its results have proven a great education for the people of the world. 
They are sick of the higher sounding phrases about political democracy and self-determination that are in practice like so many scraps of paper. It is industrial autocracy that the workers of the world seek to destroy. This country, the alleged champion of democracy, is being daily changed more and more into the regime of Prussian militarism. The government of the United States has taken advantage of the alleged necessities of the war to crush the spirit of liberty and to deprive the people of the last vestige of freedom. It has now become dangerous in this free country of ours to express an independent opinion upon any subject except perhaps about the weather. Free speech and press are a thing of the past. The American junkers and plutocrats are swamping the country with propaganda for a strong militarism. Our industrial autocrats see the handwriting on the wall and hope to crush the gathering forces of labor by the bayonet and the machine gun. The voice of liberty is being stifled in the prisons. Our jails and penitentiaries are full of political and industrial prisoners who have dared to hold an opinion of their own and to express it. Men like Debs and others are immured behind iron bars because they love liberty more than they do patrioteering. It is to the eternal disgrace of this country, the conscientious objectors, political and industrial prisoners, have not yet been given an amnesty, though even some of the reactionary countries of Europe have long since restored their social protestants to liberty. If there is any manhood left in the people of America, they should immediately voice the most compelling demand for a general amnesty for all political and industrial prisoners. Rebels against industrial autocracy, such as Debs, Kate, Richard O'Hare, and others, should be the pride of the United States instead of being kept in dungeons Woe to a country that has no Debs, Kate O'Hare, or Emma Goldman. They are the voices that cry out the best aspirations of humanity, even in the face of the gravest danger to themselves. Speaking of Debs, I was happy to have the opportunity this morning, before leaving the federal prison at Atlanta, to shake hands with the grand old man of the new day. If there ever was a martyr to liberty, Debs is that man. How stupid it is of the government to gel men of this type. Prison cannot crush their spirit, nor iron bars and brutality change their conscience. Their love of humanity transcends the fear of punishment or death. There are times when the scaffold is the most elevated position for an honest man. Ideals cannot be imprisoned, nor can the eternal spirit of liberty be exterminated by shutting up its champions in dungeons, or deporting men and women out of the United States. I feel I am convinced that the future belongs to us, to us who strive to regenerate society, to abolish poverty, misery, war and crime by doing away with the causes of these evils. And even in prison, where we cannot fight for liberty, we can always struggle for principle. It is this attitude of the political prisoners in all prisons that make their lot, lot even harder than that of the average prisoner. It is time the United States government should take its head out of the bushes and recognize the existence of political prisoners in this country. Even in the Tsarist Russia, the political prisoner was recognized as a man suffering for his ideals. Benighted America still considers the political just the same as the so-called common criminal. In the Atlanta federal prison, the politicals fare even worse than the average prisoner. A banker who got away with the savings of poor widows and orphans receives the highest consideration, while the man who loves humanity more than his own safety 
is subjected to special persecution and discrimination. I find that very few essential changes have taken place in the administration of our prisons within the last 25 years. The same system of brutalizing and degrading the prisoners still prevails, only the forms differ slightly. The dungeon known as the hole, chaining up by the wrists, clubbing, and shooting are the dominant methods of reformation in Atlanta. Men are chained to the doors for 8 and 10 hours consecutively without even the opportunity of answering the most pressing demands of nature. I have known men in the federal prison to be kept 21 to 30 days at a stretch in the hole, which is a filthy dark kennel, not fit for a respectable dog and fed on two small slices of bread twice a day. Men are clubbed frequently, on the least provocation, and recently a young colored boy, Kid Smith, was shot dead for not walking fast enough while being taken to the hole. The average type of guard in the federal prison is far below that of the average prisoner, both mentally and morally. Excepting a few decent officers of a humane spirit, the majority of the guards are vulgar, brutal, and dissipated men. Some are degenerate of the worst type, and their head is Deputy Warden Girardou, formerly in charge of a chain gang. He is a man of very low mentality who believes in the old-time methods of brutality and suppression. His tactics look towards the breaking of the prisoner's spirit and to the degradation of the inmates. A prison is the last place in the world, even at its best, to improve a man. But the Atlanta prison tends chiefly to dehumanize the prisoners and to crush the last vestige of their manhood and self-respect. It is the deputy warden who is mainly responsible for the inhumanities and outrages practiced in the federal prison. He encourages the most brutal tendencies of the guard and even frequently protests and nullifies the warden's more humane attitude. The deputy warden is the most hated man in the prison. The inmates regard him as a religious hypocrite, insincere and mean-spirited. It is his custom, after reading Sunday service, to go down to the dungeon and chain men up to the doors. He tantalizes the hungry victims in the hole with the recital of the fine breakfast he had enjoyed that morning, and in various ways seeks to provoke them into some unguarded remark in order to increase their punishment. In protest against the murderous clubbing and shooting of defenseless prisoners, I circulated a petition in the teller shop where I was employed at the time to call the attention of the warden to the terrible situation. The deputy, hearing about it, sent for me and asked me what my purpose was. I explained to him the general indignation regarding the abuse of the prisoners, whereupon he has asked me my opinion of his methods. I told him frankly that his actions did not square with his religious professions. I said that he was cruel to the men, that he lacked all sense of justice and fair play, and that I thought, as well as the majority of the prisoners, that he was a hypocrite. For this I was put on bread and water in the hole, a dark and filthy cell hardly big enough to stretch out in. After my time in the hole had expired, I was sentenced to solitary confinement for the rest of my time. I spent the last seven and a half months there. The federal prison at Atlanta would profit a great deal both in discipline and moral by the immediate discharge of Deputy Warden Girardou. Warden Fred G. Zerbst is a man far above the deputy in every sense. He is a man of modern ideas and of much experience in handling prison inmates. 
He believes in the more humane methods of prison management as against the deputy's system of brutal repression. Unfortunately, the warden is almost entirely occupied with the outside affairs of the prison, so that the inside management is practically all in the hands of the deputy. There is considerable friction between the two, with deplorable results to the prisoners. Very frequently, the best intentions of the warden are nullified by the manner of their application at the hands of the deputy. It is high time that the public get a look into the inside workings of our penal institutions. The amount of brutality practiced in them as a matter of daily routine is almost unbelievable. When will people realize that the criminal is a man more sinned against than sinning, a victim of our unjust social and economic arrangements? But after all, prisons and their methods are a reflex of the conditions in the world outside. With so much injustice, strife and brutality in the world at large, it is no wonder that prison life mirrors the same spirit. When we become civilized enough to abolish human slaughter in the larger prisons called society, when we recognize life on the basis of human brotherhood and cooperation, we will have no use for prisons. Atlanta, GA, October the 1st, 1919. By Alexander Berkman. And yes, there is a reply by Fred G. Zerbst. This is the man that Alexander just pointed out as being a modern man above the deputy. Let's see what he has to say. In yesterday's issue of your paper, you printed an article under the heading Berkman Charges Brutal Methods in Atlanta Pen, and which article is devoted principally to a personal attack on Deputy Warden Charles H. Giraudoux. It is also charged that a majority of the guard are vulgar, brutal, and dissipated men. It is not my custom to reply to ridiculous statements or attacks upon this institution made by irresponsible individuals, but in this case, the attack is somewhat along personal lines. And in justice to the men so attacked, I trust that you will see fit to record this communication the same privilege to space in your columns as that accorded to Mr. Berkman's foul and unwarranted personal attack. Deputy Warden Charles H. Giraudoux is a Christian gentleman of high character, clean habits, and high ideals, who performs his duties conscientiously with a view no less for the welfare of those confined here than for the government under which we live. He has lived in Atlanta for a great many years and is known intimately by many of Atlanta's best citizens. I wonder if any of these people can picture Charlie Giraudoux as a low-minded, brutal fiend who tortures his unfortunate victims in the manner described by Mr. Berkman. On the one hand, we have here a man who has been in Atlanta business and public life for a great many years, always working to build up its citizenship and its institutions, always having in view the public welfare. On the other hand, we have Mr. Berkman, who came to this country an anarchist, disguised by the pretense of seeking the benefits of American freedom. Mr. Berkman served a sentence of 22 years in the Pennsylvania State Prison, after which he made the same kind of an attack on that institution as he has on this one. Referring to the attack on the character of the guards on duty at this institution, the guard force here, as a whole, is constituted of good, loyal Americans who perform their duties with painstaking care, and it requires much tact and patience to handle men of all different mentalities and character assembled in a penal institution. The public little realized the work performed by these men at a compensation hardly sufficient to live decently. These guards are appointed only after passing a standard examination prescribed 
by the United States Civil Service Commission after careful investigation, showing that they are loyal Americans, that they are men of good moral character and standing in the community in which they have lived and that they possess in a high degree the qualifications necessary for the position. If any great daily paper believes that these guards are of such character as Mr. Berkman describes, it would be well to endeavour to rectify the methods by which they are selected. This institution is open to the public each day except Sundays, and many thousands of visitors take advantage of this and inspect every department. Unlike most similar institutions, our isolation building, in which are confined men who cannot be brought in any other way to respect the rights of others and the rules of the institution, is open to the public. Mr. Bergman claims that these filthy dungeons are cleaned up purely for the public visitors. If that be so, they must be cleaned twice each day, and it would not be possible for them to be very filthy at any time. I do not ask to be exonerated on account of any improper conditions existing at this institution, if such do exist, and I cheerfully accept responsibility for its management as long as I am its warden. This management, however, will be in the interest of a government constituted by the American people and not in the interest of a revolutionary propaganda seeking for the destruction of that government and the substitution, therefore, of the doctrines of Alexander Berkman and his associates, the abolition of all laws. Very truly yours, Fred G. Zerbst, the Warden. The results attained by penal institutions are the very opposite of the end sought. The modern form of civilized revenge kills, figuratively speaking, the enemy of the individual citizen, but it breeds in his place the enemy of society. The prisoner of the state does not regard the person he injured as his particular enemy, as did the member of the primitive tribe, for instance, feeling the wrath and revenge of the wronged one. Instead, he looks upon the state as his direct punisher. In the representatives of the law, he sees his personal enemies. He nurtures his wrath and wild thoughts of revenge fill his mind. His hate toward the person is directly responsible in his estimation for his misfortune. The arresting officer, the jailer, the prosecuting attorney, judge and jury gradually widens in scope, and the poor unfortunate becomes an enemy of society as a whole. Thus, while our penal institutions are supposed to protect society from the prisoner so long as he remains one, they cultivate in him the germs of social hatred and enmity. Deprived of his liberty, his rights, and the enjoyment of life, all his natural impulses, good and bad alike, suppressed, subjected to indignities and disciplined by harsh and often most inhumane methods, generally maltreated and abused by official brutes whom he despises and hates. The prisoner comes to curse the fact of his birth, the woman that bore him, and all those responsible in his eyes for his misery. He is brutalized by the treatment he receives and by the revolting sights he is forced to witness in prison. What manhood he may have possessed is soon eradicated by the discipline. His impotent rage and bitterness are turned into hatred toward everything and everybody. The feeling growing in intensity as the years of misery come and go, he broods over his troubles, and the desire to revenge himself grows on him soon. It becomes a fixed determination. Society has made him an outcast. It is his natural enemy. Nobody has shown him either kindness or mercy. He will be merciless to the world. Then he is released. His former friends spurn him. 
He is no more recognized by his acquaintances. Society points its finger at the ex-convict. He is looked upon with scorn, derision, and disgust. He is distrusted and abused. He has no money, and there is little charity for the moral leper. He finds himself a social Ishmael, with everybody's hand turned against him, and he turns his hand against everybody else. The penal and the alleged protective functions of the prison thus defeat their own ends. Their work is not merely unprofitable, it is worse than useless. It is positively and absolutely detrimental to the best interests of society. There exists no other institution among the diversified achievements of modern society which, while assuming a most important role in the destines of mankind, has proven a more reprehensible failure. Millions of dollars are annually expended for the maintenance of prisons, a great deal more than is spent on educational institutions in this country. That money could be invested with as much profit and less harm in government bonds on the planet Mars, or sunk in the Atlantic. No amount of punishment can obviate or cure crime, so long as prevailing conditions in and out of prison drive men to do it. Well folks, I hope this little research piece conjured up thoughts and points of discussion, namely, how have prisons changed since that time to now? Are the abuses transgressed towards prisoners the same, or are they worse or lesser? How much of what Emma and Alex commented on in their texts and letters relevant to today's prison climate? Just food for thought, mates. Now folks, this will be my final episode for the year, as I'm taking a much needed break to restore my narrating batteries. I'll be back on the 3rd of January, but totally reachable by email. So, if you want to reach out to me at any point, send me your stories, make recommendations, or just talk to me, you can do so at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. That's storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. And that's the best way to reach me. To my old night tea titans, Maya, you are magnificent and brilliant. Thank you so much for supporting me at your tier this year and helping this show reach new heights. An absolute godsend. To Solstra, thank you for enabling me to purchase new sound effects, like the paper flipping in this episode, and thanks for your lovely emails and communications this year. They were so sweet and so lovely. Never forget you're awesome. To my pal Lee Bauer, hearing from you is always a joy, and I can't wait to see what the new year brings. Thanks for being amazing and supporting me for as long as you have. You're brilliant, and I'm lucky to know you. To Paige Kramer, mate, thank you so much for providing me with your support that has allowed me to use new microphones, obtain new plugins, obtain new stories, and improve the show immeasurably when it comes to quality. It is a joy to hear from you. Thanks for being epic. And to my legendary Earl Grey Enforcers, here's to another good year. Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter FLE, Dolphin and Cal, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, and Alia Arcane. Happy future new year, mates! I'll be reaching out to each Patreon individually to thank you as well, because you're marvellous. Can't wait to see you again after the new year, with more stories and more tales to tingle the senses. On a serious note, stay safe, you amazing people. And as always, till next, we meet.